How's everyone feeling today? I feel now that's a first, I believe. Usually when people ask you like how they're doing, they're like, eh. and then the other person's like, well, I didn't really want to know anyway. See ya. Uh, at least that's how it was in Bible college. Like we always got made fun of at my Bible college because we would always have to walk, and you knew everybody because it was pretty small. But when you were walking like to each other's class, like, hey, how you doing? And I was like, what happens if somebody actually asks me and I'm not doing well? Like, are they actually going to listen to what I'm saying or are they just going to be like, ooh, I've actually got class? There's a sermon in there somewhere. Uh, but no, I, we're excited that you're here. If you're watching online, welcome. If you're going to watch this later, welcome. We're excited. But can I just start out this way? We're entering into what I believe is probably the most important season of the Christian faith, and it's Easter. And as a, as a pastor or a minister, student minister, children's minister, it's so frustrating because there's so much to talk about. And that we could do sermon series after sermon series, year in and year out, and we're still not scratching the surface of what we're really trying to talk about. And no matter how well we articulate it, no matter how well we may organize these thoughts, there's so much to it. And I'm here to encourage you, if nothing else, read for yourself. Because what God can open up to you, what the Holy Spirit can say to you, it cannot be replicated or duplicated in any way. So open up your Bible and read it for yourself. Don't take our word for it either. Like, don't trust us fully. Trust us some, I hope so at least. But find out exactly what God's trying to say to you. But with that, one, open up in prayer. Father, thank you for today. God, there are people in here right now who if I were to ask genuinely how are they doing, they would say not good. Whatever the reason may be, no matter what the cause may be, Father, we know that you're good. Even when it feels like you're not. Even when it feels like we're all alone, God, there are stories after stories of people in Scripture who had that exact same feeling, and yet you say, trust in the Lord your God with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. And in all of our ways to acknowledge him, and he will make our path straight. So God, my prayer today is that somebody walks away encouraged. May my words not be mine, but yours alone. In your name I pray, amen. So we're entering into this, again, the season of Easter, and we're talking about different people. And we're talking about today, again, of Peter. Say Peter. Okay, I'll try again. We're talking today about Peter. Say Peter. A student minister, need a lot of feedback. I get, I get energy from you. But Peter is like everybody's favorite guy in many, many different ways. But he's also the guy in your friend group where you're like, dude, you have got to calm down. You're going too hard today. And like he's out and about and he's just being obnoxious. And they're like, no, for real, Peter, you're causing a scene. Don't try to cut that dude's head off right now. And Peter did a lot of really good things. He walked on water. He was the one professing Christ for the first time. He taught the first sermon at, on the day of Pentecost. But what people like about Peter is that he also did a lot of dumb stuff. He did things like uh, rebuking Jesus like we talked about last week for saying that he had to suffer and die to where Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. That's like me saying that to my daughter. Get behind me, Satan. And let's be real, parents in here, don't judge me, but you've wanted to say that to your kid too. And if you don't have kids, you've wanted to say it to your animals. And if you don't have animals, you've wanted to say it to your parents. Don't sit here and judge me until you judge yourself, okay? He's also known for pulling out a sword and trying to cut a dude's head off. He's also known for showing prejudice, prejudice against the Gentiles, meaning he was favoring his own people in the Jews. Peter did a lot of good, and he did a lot of 
bad, which is where I think a lot of us actually find encouragement. And it's like, wait a second. We know Peter actually ended up doing a lot of good things for Jesus, and he did a lot of dumb stuff before he got there. So if nothing else, be encouraged by that, that we're able to do dumb things and still get away with it. I say away, but in a positive light. Because God's vision on your life is not the way that you view your life. Am I right? Whenever we're, whenever we're walking through life as humans who have a brain, who have a mind and eyes, like we see things through what I like to explain to the students as a car window. We can see what's in front of us. Yes, we understand there's a bigger world out there, but right here, right now, all we see is what is exactly in front of us. I can see people. I can see this auditorium. When I get into the car, I can see other things. But when it comes to the biggest part of the world, my eyes are limited. And lucky for us, while we see through a car window, God sees from a blimp. Is that God sees everything that's going to happen. He knows the good. He knows the bad. He knows which roads you're going to take. And he knows which ones you're going to stay on probably a little too long. And the ones you need to get off of. But ultimately, he knows the road that's going to be good. And thank God for that. Am I right? Because if we base simply our life off the mistakes that we make, well, then we're going to be stuck in a lot of darkness. And God knew that with Peter. Whenever Jesus was, was walking with him, there are so many different instances where Peter was the guy, was the one right beside him. He's, one, he's known as one of Jesus' top three guys. And Jesus obviously knew that what Peter was going to do, considering the fact that he told him he was going to do it, as we'll talk about with the denying him three times. But if Jesus simply focused on what Peter was going to do and not what Peter could be, where do you think we would be if that were the case? can't wait to dig into this. But think about it. Today, if the world ended, are you content? Are you happy? Are you satisfied with where your faith is? Are you content with how you are with your family? Are you satisfied with the way you are as a husband or a wife, maybe a mother or a father, maybe as a, a son or a daughter? Are you content with your job? Do you feel like you're succeeding at every single facet of your life? Meaning if Jesus came back today, are you happy to say, I did real good, Jesus, trust me? Odds are, no, you're not. I know I'm not, but what's good is I don't think you're ever supposed to be. Because if we've achieved the greatest thing, then number one, we're perfect, and then that goes against Scripture. But number two, we have nothing to push forward to. That's why it says to have the mind like Christ, because we have something to always look forward to. But if Jesus came back, are you satisfied with where you are? Because God sees the best in us, even whenever you see the worst in you. When you look in the mirror, what do you see? And there's probably more days than you would like that you don't like what you see. And again, God sees the world from a blimp. So what he sees in you is not what you see in you. And I am so thankful for that very fact. Because if God saw the way that I saw me, which I know he knows, well, then am I truly seeing myself in the image of God like we're created in? And that's exactly how Jesus saw Peter. He saw him as though you may do the dumbest of the dumb, you still have a lot that you're trying to do. And today we're going to be talking about whenever Peter denied Jesus three times. Have you ever done something that you're not proud of? Yes? Yeah, we're not happy with some of the things that we've done in our life. Now, how would you like it if 2,000 years from now, 
people wrote it in a book. For everybody to sit up here and for a guy like Philip Mullins to preach about on a Sunday morning, would that make you feel confident? Well, in, in going through apologetics, there's a lot of different ways that we are talking about um, this, like this class I'm in now is about the history of the resurrection. And one of the ways that people can prove that a historical document, primarily the Bible, is actually historical is by this thing called the criterion of embarrassment. Now, what this suggests is that if they think it's authentic, meaning it's actually written when you think it is, if there's something in there that makes that person not look good, then it's probably authentic because you don't want people to see you in a bad light, right? Think about your Instagram or your Facebook or your Twitter. You're always going through or even Snapchat or the family photos you send on Christmas Day. You're trying to make it look perfect and you know how how frustrating and how annoying those pictures can be while you're taking them. Parents, you know exactly what I'm talking about. One of the best pictures of Everly was right after she began to scream at me at the top of her lungs because she wanted nothing to do with me. And I had to tell everybody, oh, this was a great day. It wasn't. But Peter has this exact same fact today because his denying Jesus three times was written down in all four of the Gospels, so by four different people, four different times from four different perspectives. Do you think that whenever they were like writing this down, they were like, hey, do you think Peter would care? And Peter's probably like, yeah, it doesn't make me look very good, guys. And that's how people know that it's actually more historically accurate than what we originally put on is because it doesn't make Peter, who was one of Jesus' closest three, look good. And that actually works in favor of the Bible. But today we're going to be camping out in Matthew chapter 26, and I just want to read verses 74 through 75 real quick. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. How did this guy who has just been with walking with Jesus for three years, who has seen Jesus do so many different miracles, he's seen him raise Lazarus from the dead. You've seen him heal people. You've saw him turn water into wine. You've saw him feed 5,000, 4,000 people. You've seen countless miracles. And yet Jesus said, hey, you're going to deny me. And you said, no, I'm not. And then you do it. How do you get there? But let's not kick Peter just yet. We're going to be walking through three, three different things that I actually think help Peter here. Number one, look at his positive attitude. Look at his positive attitude. In verses 30 through 35, we read this. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of this flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter answered him, though, all, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to them, truly I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all of the disciples said the same. Peter gets a bad rap here. I believe it. 
Because we're so quick to judge the way that he responded with this. We know the ending of the story. We know that Peter ends up denying Jesus and that he does the exact thing he's saying, hey, I'm I'm not going to do that. So we know what the foreshadowing looks like. But can we just be honest? Would you be more satisfied with what Peter said if he said the opposite? Let's say Jesus goes to Peter and says, you're going to deny me three times. Would you love the scriptures if Peter simply said, you're right. Today seems like a really good day to go against the son of God. Would you be happier with that? Let's put it in more terms. Let's say I have the high school graduation thing up here. And I'm telling all of our seniors who are about to go off into college and and experience this new way of life, you're going to be tested. You're going to be tried. There are going to be really hard things. And if you're not careful, you're going to fall into things that you will regret later and your faith will fall. Now, how awesome would it be if they're like, that sounds like a lot more fun, Philip. Forget faith. Let's go out and do whatever I want. What do you expect, Peter? Of course he's going to be overly confident. Of course he's going to say, I'm never going to do that because Peter didn't think he was actually going to do it. Jesus did, but Peter didn't. Let me do it again. So my mother-in-law, she was here first service. I didn't go too in-depth. But how many of you guys are are grandfathers and grandmothers in here? How many we got? Don't be shy. We know you're not. Okay. Now, how many of you guys would say that you spoil that kid, the grandkid, way too much? Every hand that I just saw previously better be right back up. Listen, the parents get it. We know it. You know it. The kid knows it, which is why you're so easy. But it's like if I were to say to my my mother-in-law and my mom, hey, don't give that kid too many sweets this weekend because I'm going to have to deal with it on Sunday night and Monday. We both know what you're going to do. When I turn around and walk away, you're going to throw the candy at me and laugh because you know exactly what you're going to do and you're going to give her the candy. Peter was having that same kind of like, I'm never going to do that. And Jesus is basically saying, yeah, okay. Like, he's going to be overconfident. You're basically setting yourself up for failure if you're Peter because you know that you're going against what the Son of God is actually saying to you. When Jesus comes down and says to me, Philip, you're going to do this, I'm probably going to have to believe him, right? Peter didn't. Bold move. But I get it. And I think we honestly could have that same kind of optimism today. If we don't hold ourselves to a higher standard, if we don't challenge ourselves and say, no, 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 like, I, I get it. Listen, you know you can be confident in yourself as a Christ follower, right? You know you can be confident in the fact that, hey, I may not know for sure that I'm going to make it to heaven, but I'm going to do everything in my power to be in relationship with Jesus Christ. That's where the confidence comes from. There's a difference between confidence and arrogance, as we're going to talk about. But there is a level that you can be confident in who God made you to be. And that's exactly what Peter was trying to do. You see, we as people, we don't like to to open ourselves up too much because we like to protect ourselves because we hate being disappointed. But Peter didn't actually think he was going to do what Jesus said he was going to do. Remember, he said, I am willing to die on behalf of you, even if everybody else runs away. Aristotle once wrote about this thing called the golden mean. And this is the idea that the best approach in life is usually the middle ground between two extremes. So for instance, one extreme is called the vice of deficiency. 
This is where you don't have enough of whatever the characteristic is. On the other end, you have the vice of excess, where you have too much of this. If we use just the typical word of ambition, if you have too little of ambition, you're called lazy or apathetic. If you have too much of it, you're called greedy, maybe even a workaholic. Another one, let's try confidence. If we talk about having too little of confidence, you're considered timid and insecure. If you have too much, you're considered arrogant. And yet, when it comes to confidence, the Bible actually warns against both. When Paul is talking to Timothy, he says that God has not given you a spirit of timidity. And in the Old Testament, Solomon writes in Proverbs that pride goes before destruction. So you can have too much of one thing and too little of another. And Aristotle has this idea of the golden mean, which is the middle ground between both. And if we're being honest, Peter was overambitious. He was a guy who did just a little bit too much. But is that such a bad thing? Can it be? Absolutely, 100%. There are times for that. But it's been said, it's easier to restrain a fanatic than to resurrect a corpse. I would rather have people in my life who encourage me by their overambition than to have somebody in my life who causes me to think less about my, about my position, about my life. And I think you would agree with me on that, is you would rather have people encourage you by being overly ambitious, meaning they're talking you up a lot, and you're like, wait a minute, I'm not that good. I'm not that cool. And you're probably right, we're not. But people need to be there. But there's something powerful about people believing in you. Am I right? Whenever I preach, um, my wife prays for me. And there is nothing more powerful than having your spouse pray for you. I mean, I'll, I'll say this, like, it, it, there, there's something powerful about people praying over you in general. There's been two instances that have stuck out into me in my life. Is number one, uh, whenever my daughter was born, she had hip dis, uh, dysplasia, which is where she had to be in a harness for a month of her, the first month of her life. It was awful, awful as a parent to see her. She was good. She was cool. She didn't even know the difference. But as a parent, it was terrible because you thought she was hurting. But we were out to eat one night with some friends, and I would go to the bathroom, and I come back, and there's just a random person praying with my wife and my daughter. I'm like, uh-oh, what's that mean? So I walk up, and she's like, no, she just saw her harness and felt like God told her to pray for us. My, my wife and my daughter were never in danger of, of something life-threatening, but somebody felt pulled to pray. Another instance, I was at the beach, and we just got to talking with some people, and they were in ministry, and we were in ministry, Two days later, they're like, hey, listen, we fought this urge because we didn't want to be weird, but we feel like God's telling us to pray for you. Give me a brick wall. Let me run through it in those moments. Because there's something powerful about somebody else believing in you, even if you don't know them. Because it's only by God that people believe in anything, if you really think about it. So whenever you feel that pull to pray somebody, here's my plug, do it. Don't be scared. If you offend them, I'd rather offend people than God. That's a Bible verse. Number two, notice his courageous spirit. Notice his courageous spirit. Here in uh, Matthew chapter 22, uh, verse 36, we read this. Then Jesus went with them to 
a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go there and pray. So he grabs all of his disciples. They go up. And then he says, I'm going to take Peter, James, and John. And then they're going to go up a little bit farther with me. And then I'm going to go pray by myself. But during that time, Judas is actually coming with the Roman soldiers to arrest Jesus. Now, Jesus obviously knew all this. He knew what was happening. So you have the great Jesus prayer that I, that to, that I think you need to read every single day of your life. But in verses 50 through 51, we read this. We have it. Yep. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Could you imagine being Judas in that moment? Like, you're probably already fighting this reluctant thing, like, oh my goodness, what am I doing? And then Jesus knows exactly what's going on. He looks, remember, he foretold that this was going to happen. And he says, friend, do what you came to do. Do what you came to do. Then they came up, they laid hands on Jesus, and they seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand, which we find out is actually Peter, drew his sword and struck the servant, who we find out his name's Malchus, the high priest, and cut off his ear. Again, Peter, calm down. You ain't got to try to kill people. We haven't had to do that in three years. Why start now? But here's my question is, why were there swords to begin with? Well, let's read in Luke chapter 22 with verse, uh, we have verse 36 and 38. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. In this moment, some people would like to speculate and say that Jesus told them to bring any swords to protect their families, potentially, if things got really ugly. And that's just a speculation. Another one is that he's saying, hey, two's enough, you're not going to need them. Don't overthink it. Jesus knew what was about to happen. And Peter was about to have his moment. I always feel like, is anybody else in here the guy or the girl who says, like, you're just sitting in a room like this and you play the what if scenarios in your head? Like, what if this happens? And you're like, you're preparing your mind for what you would do in a reaction, even if it's completely ridiculous. Like, if you're out in the woods and you're camping, you're like, all right, what would I do if a wolverine came and tried to eat me? Like, you're like, okay, well, first of all, I'll just cut off his head and be good. You know what I'm saying? We have people like that. And I think Peter is that guy who's just playing off, all right, if things get bad, I'm just going to try to cut the dude's ear off, no matter who it is. So he either has really good aim, aimed for the ear, got it, went for the head and missed it, has really bad aim, right? Either way, an appendage fell off. Jesus puts it back on. And Peter was having his moment of it's time to react. And remember, he said he was going to. I'm willing to die on account of you. Have you ever had to actually react in those instances? A couple of months ago, um, if, you're newly, if you're newly married in here, don't do what I'm doing right now. I was driving over the bridge in Mandeville with my wife and my two-year-old, and I see something in the road. I'm an animal lover. I'll save them. And I see the biggest turtle I've ever seen in my life. And it was a snapping turtle that was built like a Volkswagen. And I needed to save him because he was going to get hit. 
But I didn't know it was a snapping turtle at the time. I just knew it was big. It was going really slow because it's a turtle. Time to react. So I come back down. I turn back around. I, I plant my family in the car on the side, turn on the hazards. They're safe, right? And I go up to this turtle, unbeknownst to him, and I pick him up. He's bigger than I was expecting, but you know snapping turtles, if they're big enough, they can take your finger off. Amen. Yep. I still got all mine, so the story turns out decently well. Not for him. So I pick up the turtle, and then he realizes, hey, something's touching me. So he looks up, sees me. I think he basically yelled at me and then tried to bite me. I dropped him. So I'm like, it's okay, buddy. I'm, I'm going to save you. I pick him back up, walk a couple more feet like this. He goes to bite me again. I drop him. Four, four more times, my wife's watching the whole thing unfold while I'm dodging traffic. Four more times, I drop this turtle on his head. I think I heard the turtle say, just let me get hit. Let me die at this point. I'd rather have this than concussions that I've got. So I get him over to the barrier, and he's looking at me, and we're locking eyes. And I'm like, we're here now, buddy. I'm going to finish this. So I take a stick, turn it sideways. I jab it into his mouth so he bites down on something, not my fingers. I pick him up, and I just kind of launch him over the side of the barrier. I don't want to say I'm a hero, but here we are. He would disagree. But my point is, is in those moments where it makes zero sense, zero. And I'm pretty sure if a car hit him, he would have been just fine. He was that big. But in those moments, are you willing to step up and react? Are you willing to put action to your words? We always talk about how we would defend our family, but if it actually came down to it, would we? I'm assuming the answer is yes, but think about it. If it came down to reacting to words, would you? Because Peter did even if it didn't turn out the way that he, number one, expected it to. But we have to have that kind of fight today. We have to be willing to be courageous even whenever it goes against our nature. A lot of us in here, we, we, we have that fight or flight reaction, and one will always come out when you need it to. But are you willing to fight against it when it goes the opposite way? Peter was willing to fight. So he had a courageous spirit. So we have a positive attitude and a courageous, a courageous spirit. And then number three, a genuine repentance. This is a word that makes people uncomfortable, is repent. Mainly because a lot of different groups of churches out there do the whole repent or perish and they teach the hellfire brimstone stuff. And they take it to that over part and then you have the churches who don't talk enough about it. So we're gonna try to find the golden mean here. Genuine repentance means to change your mind, but it requires action. So whenever we get scared about this idea of what it means to be genuinely repentant, do we even know what that word actually means? Well, here in verse 58, we read this. And Peter was following him at a distance. As far as the courtyard of the high priest and going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. So Peter has just cut off a dude's ear, watched Jesus put it back on, and now Peter is the only one who is trying to see what happens. The only one of the 12. But he's doing it from a distance. And when you see the phrase, to see what happens in the end, Peter knew what was going to happen. 
He knew he was going to die, and he wanted to see it through. He wanted to see what was about to go down. But this is another reason why I don't think Peter actually believed he was going to deny Jesus three times. He didn't necessarily think that he was going to do it. But that gives us another point here is that there's a difference between spontaneous sinning and deliberate sinning. See, spontaneous sinning is the one where you look back at the end of the day and say, why did I do that? That's not me. That's not who I am. Deliberate sinning is the one where you wake up and you say, today I'm going to lie my way out of this situation. Every middle schooler and high schooler has done this. Every adult here has done this. We know what it means to be spontaneous with sinning. We don't mean to do it. That's not necessarily our nature. It just kind of happens because guess what? You are a sinful person. We are the sinful people. That's how it's always been. That's how it's always going to be. Our nature will be to sin. The difference is, is are you willing to fight against that nature even when you do it? And that's what repentance is. That's what Peter was going to do with the denying Jesus three times. He didn't think he was going to do it, which makes it spontaneous. The the, the situation caused for it. But what about Judas, on the other hand? Judas, on the other hand, he has been scheming up this situation to where he was going to sell Jesus out for silver. It was deliberate. He knew exactly what he was going to do, which says a lot about how we look at sin. We can all agree that sin separates us from God. We read that in scripture. We know that sin is the separation and that God hates sin. But is all sin equal? No. Think about it. If I were to lie to you, I'm not going to go to jail for it. But if I murder, I'm going to go to jail for it if I'm caught. In the Old Testament, the same situation calls for. In the Old Testament, the punishment for stealing somebody's sheep was that they had to sell, they had to buy them four more sheep and the other one. So if I stole one of, let's say, somebody else, somebody's sheep, I've got to give them five back, the original one and then four more. But if I killed somebody else, I had to die. Sin is equal. Consequences are different. That's what our judicial system is based off of. Another example in Exodus 21, if somebody accidentally killed another man, they could flee to another city and hide in refuge and not be punished. They just had to leave their home. But if you did it deliberately, now you had to die. Sin is equal in the eyes of God. Consequences are different. Some sins are spontaneous and some are premeditated. In 1 John chapter 3 Verse 9, we read this. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. If we wake up preparing ourselves to sin, we have already failed the day. Our nature will be to sin, absolutely. We're sinful people born in a broken world, but because of Jesus Christ, we don't have to. What the idea of repentance is, is what are you doing to place blocks inside of you that keep me from sinning? Meaning if you are dealing with one specific thing in your life that, it, that, that you just can't seem to break, what makes you sin is not the thought, it's the action. You can't stop thoughts. You can't prevent them. They will change over time, don't get me wrong, but the action itself is where the sin happens. What are you doing to stop? Let me explain with Peter. Peter you see in this story that, that, that he actually 
sins one time by denying Jesus once. My question is, is why didn't you leave there? Why didn't you stop after that? He had what I like to call the little engine that could mentality and what we do. Whenever we're struggling with a specific sin, we tell ourselves it's not a big deal. I'm good. I can take care of this. I can do it on my own. I don't want to tell anybody because that's embarrassing. I don't want to talk about it because I don't think I've got a problem. But then what you notice is that that once comes to twice, and then that twice becomes three times, and so forth and so on, to where you finally realize there was a moment where I could have stopped it and I didn't. So the little engine that could mentality is, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can do it alone. And I think that's kind of where Peter was going is, no, I don't think I've got a problem. I can do this. So in Matthew, verses 69 through 75, we read this. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a serving girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. She noticed him. She knew who he was. But he denied it before them all saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. It's nighttime. The fact that they even can see who he is is pretty telling that they actually, hey, that might actually be this dude. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. That's twice. After a little while, the bystanders came up to Peter and said, certainly you two are one of them, for your accent betrays you. I hear the way you talk. I know your voice. You know who you are too. So then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed and Peter remembered the sayings of Jesus. What makes that unique is if you flip over to the Luke account in Luke chapter 22, it says that Jesus looks at him and they lock eyes. In that moment, could you imagine being Peter? Could you imagine being the guy who you said, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to sin against you. If everybody else falls away, I'm not going to be one of them. And then you're the very one who's sitting there and you do it openly. At least the other disciples weren't there to sin against him that way. You did it out in the open in front of everybody. So that look of Jesus, Peter was probably waiting for condemnation. But if you look at the Greek of what that word look actually means... That word is used two other times that we know of. And in John chapter 1, that word look is the exact same word they used when Jesus first called Peter. And another time on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, when it says that he went to, he said to look at the lilies of the field to see how much I care for them, would I not care for you more than that? The look that Jesus gave Peter was not a look of condemnation. It was a look of caring. He was telling Peter, it's okay. And Peter's basically, I feel like he's fighting this inner dialogue. I've just sinned against Jesus. He told me I was going to. I basically put my life on the fact that I wouldn't, and I did it anyways. And Jesus looks at him in the eyes and says, it's okay. I knew it was going to happen. I've got bigger plans for you than what you think. You just have to do it. And I wonder what that actually would look like to us today. We are so quick to beat ourselves down. 
we mess up and we mess up and we mess up and we continuously make mistake after mistake after mistake. And when we look in the mirror, the look we give ourselves is of condemnation. We tell ourselves that we're not worthy. We tell ourselves that we're not good enough. And I believe that exact same look is being back at us because you're made in the image of God. And that look is saying, it's okay. Be confident in who you are. Because it's never been about, and it's never going to be about what you do. It's about what Jesus Christ did for you and what we're about to celebrate in just a few weeks. Because without that moment, this is pointless. If the resurrection does not happen, Christianity is pointless. Paul says so in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that if the resurrection doesn't happen, your faith is useless. And lucky for us, the tomb is empty. And because of that, you have life. But what are you going to do with it? Are you going to allow yourself to continuously be stuck in the things that put you down? Meaning, are you going to allow yourself to sin and then you're going to stay there and you're going to deny Jesus again and again and again and again because you won't learn to leave after the first one? Repentance means to turn around, to change your way of thinking, to change your actions. What are you going to do with it? Peter shows us three things to show what it means to be truly repent. Number one, there is conviction, which results in saying, I was wrong. There is contrition, which results in saying, I am sorry. There is change, which results in saying, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to follow Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, we read this. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. In Acts chapter 2, verses 38 through 39, we have one of the best verses. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls himself. Are you going to allow the reactions of the world to lead you to interaction with Jesus? Because without it, we're living for ourselves and that grief causes death. I don't know what we struggle with today. At least what you're struggling with right now in this moment. But I'm here to encourage you to keep fighting keep fighting. Don't let yourself be knocked down so far that you just can't get back up because you're tired of fighting. Be willing to fight for truth. Be willing to fight for your faith and your relationship with Jesus. Because if we're simply living for ourselves, we're going to be alone for a very long time. And yet when I look at scripture, it's the opposite. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. God, I don't understand so many things about life. I don't understand how somebody is, is, is willing to send himself as a person to die on behalf of somebody like me who screws up regularly. I don't understand how people try to take that away either. God, the greatest outpouring of love is exactly what you did in Jesus Christ. And without that, this life is pointless, and I will forever say that because I refuse to think that this life is pointless. I refuse to think that we just simply live and we die. There's too much evidence against it. 
There's too much evidence that points that there's so much bigger beyond our world that we just simply don't understand. And I'm okay with not understanding because I serve somebody who does understand. So God, bless our time. Bless our moments. Bless the ideas and the motives that we have, God, to change the way that we react to things. And help us to believe in you every step of the way. In your name I pray, amen.